Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsor at MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Rebecca F. Kwong at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Speculative fiction superstar Rebecca Kwong is the author behind the number one New York Times bestselling The Poppy War Trilogy. Described by Publishers Weekly as an ambitious fantasy, reimagining of Asian history, populated by martial artists, philosopher generals, and gods. Kwong's early masterwork spans three installments, The Poppy War, The Dragon Republic, and The Burning God. Kwong's first standalone, Babel, debuted to a warm reception in 2022. Set in an alternate universe version of Victorian England, Babel envisions a British empire fueled by a unique form of alchemy. A specially trained corps of linguists harnesses the innate magic of language and translation to power everything from medicine to transportation. According to the Oxford Review of Books, the true magic of Kwong's novel lies in its ability to be both rigorously academic and consistently welcoming to the reader. In addition to her skyrocketing fiction career, Kwong is an accomplished translator and scholar pursuing a PhD from Yale University. So happy to be here, um, especially because my last memory of, of flying through Minneapolis was with my high school debate team, and I remember getting very nauseous at the, <laughs> the rides at Mall of America, so it's nice to come back and experience this place as an adult. Um, so the academic semester has just ended, which means that there are a lot of term papers that I haven't finished writing. and. Even more term papers I haven't finished grading. I claimed that I was going to grade in my hotel room this afternoon, and I just read The Age of Innocence instead <laughs> and took a nap. So, um, But I think it is always worth packing my bags and hopping on a flight across the country to talk about literature with people. So typically what I do at these things is chat a little bit about the themes in the popular trilogy or in Babel, um, which are my previous books. but. Uh, well, so if you're new to my work, then just know that that means I spent a lot of time talking about war and colonialism and imperialism and Chinese history and family trauma. Um, but I have a new book coming out in just two weeks now, and I haven't gotten to talk very much about it in public yet, so I'm very excited to do that here. Yellowface is kind of my gremlin of a pandemic novel. I always joke that you can tell when a book is somebody's pandemic novel. There's just something about it. All the books coming out in late 2022, early 23, I'm like side-eyeing because I know like the author was depressed and alone and <laughs> isolated when they wrote that. And there's, there's this like chaotic energy about pandemic novels, I think. Um, but so Yellowface is also a very big departure from my previous work. I previously worked on these big, hefty, epic fantasy novels with lots of war and sacrifice and bloodshed. And on the other hand, Yellowface is kind of written in this very zippy, contemporary style that feels like a Twitter meltdown in live action. Um, so it feels very different, but I promise you that it's just as vicious. And I'll tell you the pitch for it very quickly. It's a satire of the publishing industry disguised as a psychological thriller. 
and it's about a white writer named Juniper Song who steals her Chinese-American friend's unpublished manuscript after that friend dies in a pancake-eating contest. Um, so it's ridiculous right off the bat, and this happens in chapter one, so it's not a spoiler. Um, but then Juniper proceeds to publish this novel, which is about Chinese laborers on the front during World War I, and she publishes it under her own name, all the while pretending to be vaguely ethnic when, when she's just very white. Um, so the whole book is this kind of gleeful romp through the train wreck that is the publishing world and the lies that people tell about themselves and all the, I think, very exploitative and reductive ways that we talk about racial identity and marginalization in this industry. So it's kind of an absurd book about an absurd industry and I had too much fun writing it. <laughs> And I'd love to chat with y'all a bit about how I came to the narrative voice of Yellowface and why I wrote it in the style that I did. Um, because I really love to do this thing called genre hopping. I, I get bored easily, and especially after making the mistake of signing on for a three-book trilogy for, for my <laughs> debut novel, being forced to work in the same world with the same characters echoing in my head. Characters I came up with when I was a teenager, I was still writing when I was 24. And when you're 24, you think everything you did when you were 19 is stupid. So <laughs> once I'd wrapped up the popular trilogy, I thought, never again. Every new project has to be its own unique challenge, its own set of, of technical tricks. Um, so every time I write in a new genre, I do a lot of reading around in that genre. I call this vocal training. Um, I, so I binge read the major works and I soak in all the common tropes and plot twists and just try to absorb the rhythm and the flow of the sentences of that style. So these days I'm thinking a lot about the voice of the contemporary psychological thriller. And by this I mean the voice of the narrator in books like um, Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl, Paula Hawkins's The Girl on the Train, etc. A lot of these titles have girl in them, um, which I find curious, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But what I found is that there's this particular female voice that narrates a lot of these thrillers, and she almost always speaks in the present tense, and she's very descriptive, and she has such an eye for the minute details of people's lives and what it says about them. So she, she really wants to point out to you, like the lukewarm tray of carrots and broccoli at a house party, the casserole dishes foisted upon you in the Midwest. Um, she's always noticing whether people's clothes don't fit right, what Starbucks order they have, if people are smokers, you know, if they're just trying to j get drunk at a party. And she's, she's quippy, she's condescending, and, and she's remarkably mean. That's the main thing. I think she is, she's just so addictive to listen to because every sentence she utters just drips with this scathing irreverence for the people around her. This, this voice is so compelling that very often, actually, you'll find that in the film adaptation of these thrillers, the director usually just has the female lead read lines from the, the book version out loud as voiceover exposition. So. This is kind of the technique in the new Mila Kunis movie. I think this is one of the things that makes the movie version of Gone Girl so good. We are just getting the most electric lines from, from the original novel. And although the speaker of this voice is, I think, not somebody we would ever want to hang out with or, um, or certainly not ever to become, we find that we can't stop listening to her. So I've been meditating on what it is about this voice and why are we so drawn to it. So I'm going to read you a little excerpt now from Yellowface so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, and these are some scenes from the first chapter. The night I watch Athena Liu die, we're celebrating her TV deal with Netflix. Off the bat, for this story to make sense, you should know two things about Athena. First, she has everything. A multi-book deal straight out of college, an MFA from the one writing workshop everyone's heard of, a resume of prestigious artist residencies and a history of awards and nominations longer than my grocery list. She's published three novels, each one a successfully bigger hit. For Athena, the Netflix deal was not a life-changing event, just another feather in her cap, one of the side perks of the road to literary stardom she's been 
hurtling down since graduation. Second, perhaps of a consequence of the first, she has almost no friends. Writers our age, young, ambitious, up-and-comers just this side of 30, tend to run in packs. You'll find evidence of cliques all over social media, writers gushing over excerpts of one another's unpublished manuscripts, losing my head over this work in progress, squealing over cover reveals, this is so gorgeous, I will die, and posting selfies of group hangs at literary meetups across the globe. But Athena's Instagram photos feature no one else. She regularly tweets career updates and quirky jokes to her 70,000 followers, but she rarely ats other people. She doesn't name drop, doesn't blurb or recommend her colleagues' books, and doesn't publicly rub shoulders in that ostentatious, desperate way early career writers do. In the entire time I've known her, I've never heard her reference any close friends but me. I used to think that she was simply aloof. Athena is so stupidly, ridiculously successful that it makes sense she wouldn't want to mingle with mere mortals. Athena presumably chats exclusively with blue check holders and fe fellow best-selling authors who can entertain her with their rarefied observations on modern society. Athena doesn't have time to make friends with proletarians. But in recent years, I've developed another theory, which is that everyone else finds her as unbearable as I do. It's hard, after all, to be friends with someone who outshines you at every turn. Probably no one else can stand Athena because they can't stand constantly failing to measure up to her. Perhaps I'm only here because I'm just that pathetic. So that night, it's only Athena and me at a loud, overpriced rooftop bar in Georgetown. She's flinging back cocktails like she has a duty to prove she's having a good time. And I'm drinking to dull the bitch in me that wishes she were dead. <laughs> so I'll skip over some exposition. And the next part I want to share with you is just these paragraphs. People always describe jealousy as this sharp, green, venomous thing. Unfounded, vinegary, mean-spirited. But I found that jealousy, to writers, feels more like fear. Jealousy is the spike in my heart rate when I glimpse news of Athena's success online. Another book contract, awards nominations, special editions, foreign rights deals. Jealousy is constantly comparing myself to her and coming up short. Is panicking that I'm not writing well enough or fast enough, that I am not and never will be enough. Jealousy means that even just learning that Athena signing a six-figure option deal with Netflix means that I'll be derailed for days, unable to focus on my own work, mired by shame and self-disgust every time I see one of her books in a bookstore display. Every writer I know feels this way about someone else. Writing is such a solitary activity. You have no assurance that what you're creating has any value, and any indication that you're behind in the rat race sends you spiraling into the pits of despair. Keep your eyes on your own paper, they say. But that's hard to do when everyone else's papers are flapping constantly in your face. Though I feel the vicious kind of jealousy, too, watching Athena talk about how much she adores her editor, a literary powerhouse named Marlene Ng, who plucked me from obscurity and just really understands what I'm trying to do on a craft level, you know. I stare at Athena's brown eyes, framed by those ridiculously large lashes that make her resemble a Disney forest animal. And I wonder, <laughs> what is it like to be you? What is it like to be so impossibly perfect, to have every good thing in the world? And maybe it's the cocktails over my over, or my overactive writer's imagination, but I feel this hot coiling in my stomach, a bizarre urge to stick my fingers in her very red painted mouth and rip her face apart to neatly peel her skin off her body like an orange and to zip it up over myself. <laughs> so if you thought that was fun, Yellowface comes out in about two weeks. Um, <laughs> and you can read it then. I also have some snazzy bookmarks, um, which you get if you pre-order it here. Uh, but I, so I really want to dig into what makes this very snarky voice so addictive. What are the common traits running through these nasty women? And what does it say about how we portray women in fiction? Because the first thing I notice when I read a book like Gone Girl or The Girl on the Train is that these ladies do a lot of people watching. Specifically, they do quite a lot of judging of other women. 
and their conclusions are almost never kind. They summarize other women's failures and delusions in such vicious one-liners. Poor Anna, she might have been interesting once, but then she had a baby. Poor Andy, this airheaded college student who has a, who's having an affair with my husband. Poor Noelle, who can't keep her pee inside her bladder. Poor Margot, she's so Midwestern. And by contrast, the men in these stories are almost always an afterthought, described in very vague, broad categories. Handsome, ugly, boring, interesting, safe, dangerous. But it's always the women who are scrutinized in full with all of their flaws, real and speculative, laid out deliciously before us like a buffet of schadenfreude. And these narrators don't just observe and criticize. They also do a lot of speculating and imagining the lives of their rivals. They scroll through their Instagrams and they imagine their Pilates regimen, their juice cleanses, their yoga workouts, their, their sugar-free yogurt, their night out with friends. How happy they must be, how skinny, how bright their laughter as they canoodle the men they have stolen from our narrator. And oftentimes these daydreams turn quite violent. The main character of the girl on the train informs us during a daydream. I grab him from behind. I wind my hand into her long blonde hair. I jerk her head backwards. I pull her to the floor and I smash her head against the cool blue tiles. And often these daydreams in this genre really just descend into fantasies of literally ripping other women apart. Now, I think part of what me makes reading these fantasies fun must be just drinking in the mean girl vibes. Um, and I think that's okay to admit. We all love gossip and we all get a certain thrill from sitting around the lunch table whispering about other people's lives. And I think there's also this beautiful creativity that only the drunk, nasty friend at the bar is capable of. Um, they always come up with the most hilarious insults and it's fun to laugh at the bar even if we get a moral hangover the next day. And I think sometimes we just like the imperfect narrator. We spend so much time bottling up our feelings that it's refreshing to sit in the head of someone who is simply not nice and is not pretending to be nice. But is that all that's going on here? I think, well, certainly it's nice to vent. I suggest it's cathartic even that reading these novels is a way to dispense all your ugly feelings that you can't enact in real life. But I think it's also easy to succumb to a pretty misogynistic reading of these texts. Um, because I think I'd be sad if this were the only way that women could be three-dimensional. Women are hysterical, they hate each other, they starve themselves to keep skinny, they are irrational and unpredictable. And the bloody twists of all these trailers, or all these thrillers, might serve to confirm our worst hypotheses about women, that we're in constant competition with each other for male attention, and we're willing to bludgeon each other to death in battle for dominance. And that would be a very sad thing to conclude about female sociality, that we're only able to be intimate with one another, and we can only express our attraction to one another through violent fantasies of clawing and biting each other apart and replacing each other and putting on the other's skin that were just petty, immature girls. And again, I want to return to how the titles of these thrillers are always about girls, never women, the girl on the train, gone girl, luckiest girl alive. So what is going on here? Do we have a generation of thriller writers and readers who just hate women? I don't think that's likely. Um, so here I think it's helpful to turn to a book by the scholar CNI called Ugly Feelings. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. It's a bit of a dense read, but I come back to it again and again as I'm trying to sort through what makes the contemporary thriller so appealing. So Ugly Feelings is a book of literary criticism about the affect of certain ugly emotions in film and literature. Emotions like envy, anxiety, paranoia, irritation, which are certainly emotions that we see crop up in psychological thrillers all the time. And these are not the higher passions or noble emotions of Greek epics or of Shakespeare. They don't offer any kind of great moral resolution or emotional catharsis. They're a lot more ethically and politically ambiguous. And they often leave us feeling more frustrated and conflicted than we do when we read something like the Iliad. Um, 
Now, I particularly like the way that Nye writes about envy because Nye, like me, is very curious about how envy always gets portrayed as the emotions of ugly women. You're not supposed to be envious. If you are envious, then, then you want things that you're not entitled to, then your skin turns green, and you're automatically the villain. And Nye writes, moralized and uglified to such an extent that it becomes shameful to the subject who experiences it. Envy also becomes stripped of its potential critical agency as an ability to recognize and antagonistically respond to potentially real and institutionalized forms of inequality. So I'd like to suggest that we examine what sorts of critical agency envy facilitates. And I suggest that this genre satisfies because its ire is not directed towards women themselves, but towards the scripts that they have to fulfill. And I think perhaps all of that fury and condescension, that dripping condescension, is directed towards all the acts that women have to perform, the unbelievable hoops that we have to jump through to be taken seriously. And maybe our mean girl narrator is not laughing at the woman with a perfect life, but she's laughing at the futility of the woman who tries. And she sees through everyone and despises everyone not because she wishes she was them, but because she's just so tired of playing that game. And perhaps indulging in that scathing narrative voice, reading it, enjoying it, writing it, perhaps that is just akin to the feeling of kicking off heels that are destroying your ankles, or ripping your shapewear to shreds because you can't breathe. And so I keep coming back to Gone Girl because it's, it just does so many things, and I find that the character Amy Dunn is, is better at this than anyone. And Amy hates other women. There's not a single female character in that novel that Amy doesn't categorize and mock. In Amy's head, they're all just stereotypes. The college slut, the jealous sister, the sacrificing Midwestern mom, the clingy friend, the motel burnout. Amy is a misogynist, um, but it's worth remembering also that the only woman that Amy brutally murders is herself. At least, it's a framed murder, but she is doing this metaphorical slaughter of, of the fictional cool girl, the perfect wife version of herself that succumbs to all of her husband's expectations, that kind of smothers and erases herself to make her husband happy. So yes, Amy hates other women, but what she hates the most is the role that she's been forced to play. So I'll end my little spiel by suggesting that the nasty female voice of thriller novels is addictive because at the end of the day, she just really wants to be free from all this bullshit. And I think we all do too. So that is, that's part of why I had so much fun writing Yellow Face. And I hope as you read it, you will indulge in those ugly feelings in yourself as well. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Rebecca Kwong and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about the inspiration behind the character's name of Athena. Honestly, I picked the name Athena because I met a girl named Athena in college and I just thought that is the coolest name and it's always stuck with me. Um, but another reason, well, so I really love Greek mythology and I love the classics and a funny thing about the process of writing Yellowface is that typically my plotting process takes months and months. I come up with a vague idea of the vibes of the character or the argument of a book, but it takes a lot of playing around and rearranging scenes and writing scenes I don't like and deleting them and writing, rewriting them until I'm satisfied to, to see the shape of a novel. But Yellowface was very different. I, well, so it was early 2021, so I was doing like a pathetic little workout in my office one morning. Um, 
using this like YouTube Pilates video and then just all of a sudden the the entire plot beat for beat kind of drop into t into my head all at once so that by the end of the workout I knew exactly what the next novel was going to be, how it started, how it ended, the, the climax and how they're resolved and part of the mythology of Athena is that she she's never a child. She kind of just springs fully grown, fully developed from the skull of her father Zeus. So that's my little Greek mythology joke that this novel was my Athena. This audience member asked what Kwong thinks of her novel sometimes being categorized as a thriller. I mostly think genre labels are kind of silly. They're a way to organize your bookstore and your library and it's almost never a clean mapping onto actual story forms. For instance, there was this news piece that ran a few weeks ago about Yellowface calling it my literary debut. And I was so confused by this because I thought having written four other novels, <laughs> it means you're no longer a literary debut. So there's also this um, big divide between science fiction and fantasy and literary fiction as well. Because if you're writing things with magic and dragons and, uh, and you know, big, epic, speculative elements, then I think there is still this assumption that that's not proper, prestigious storytelling, that, you know, people are only reading it for the cool stuff, but not for the literary value of the work. And I think that bias has persisted so that literary fiction and science fiction and fantasies are stocked in different sections of the bookstore. And it makes it possible to claim that this is my literary fiction thriller, although I think that's ridiculous because as somebody who does spend so much time jumping in between genres and trying all different voices and styles, I think storytelling just is storytelling. And I think it's a bit messy to slap on these labels. And I agree with you that oftentimes these labels are coming from a place of wanting to put authors into boxes. So part of the inability to consider BIPOC writers as thriller writers or mystery writers or um, you know, anybody other than literary fiction is that literary fiction is the niche where you talk about racial trauma. And it's like, wow, literary fiction by a black writer, they're talking about how hard it is to be black, right? Not about the, the plot of the novel, which might just be a run-of-the-mill psychological thriller like you said. And I think people are trying to put yellow face in a box of this is about Asian racial trauma and it's about whiteness in publishing and that's all it is. It's not an entertaining story in its own right because, you know, yellow face is about race. It's also about a lot of other things. It's mostly about a very damaging relationship between two friends and, and how toxic that is and how their rivalry and mutual jealousy and distrust have kind of destroyed them. And I think that this is a universal story that resists this kind of pigeonholing. But I am also frustrated by this move to just sideline my work as this is work by a BIPOC writer and it's just about racial trauma and it's not about anything else. This question is what inspired Rebecca Kwong to become a writer. I love that question because it assumes there's like this Hollywood like film version of like a singular moment, like Steven Spielberg going to the movies and like seeing something on the big screen and being like, I'm gonna be a filmmaker. Um, but the answer, the honest answer is a lot more boring than that. And it's just that I've always loved reading and I think because my family immigrated to the US when I was young and um, English was my second language, a lot of my, my life, my imagination, my access into English was through reading novels voraciously. Um, I, was, I was reading as a way to, to learn new words and part of what happens when you're speaking mostly a non-English language at home but reading in English all the time is that you mispronounce everything. So I would go, go to elementary school and we'd like read aloud from our um, reading comprehension textbooks and I remember in fourth grade we came across the word debris and my classmate pronounced it deb debris and I was like, that's ridiculous, it's debris, it's, don't you see the S? <laughs> um, and, and this has happened to me throughout my life, but so it's a complicated negotiated relationship with English, but it's also you know, the act of reading and telling stories and articulating myself in English that, that gave me power and confidence to find my voice. Um, 
for a lot of elementary school, I actually had a speech impediment. Hopefully you can't tell now, um, but I, I had this problem where I would, I would speak, but no sound would come out. And they were very confused by this because they, they did take me to a speech therapist and, and she was asking to me to pronounce all sorts of things. And my mouth was making all the right shapes, but I was just so terrified of not getting English right that, that I wouldn't vocalize anything. And it's only through storytelling and, and reading constantly and writing and imagining that I was able to overcome that. So I think my journey to being a writer is very much wrapped up in my journey to learning English. This audience member asks about Kwong's experience of writing about a culture that she is not necessarily connected to geographically. I'm trying to organize my thoughts because I'm also, this is sort of what my dissertation is about. Um, and <laughs> all my PhD research is about diaspora literature and questions of authenticity and belonging and who has the right to write what story, etc. So I will speak quickly to the kind of imposter syndrome that comes from being part of diaspora. There's this kind of weird paradox that I think a lot of diaspora writers are forced into in that, you know, we're not properly white, we'll never be considered just everyday storytellers. We're always read in a very overtly racialized way. And I've seen, you know, in-house marketing documents from my publisher about myself I don't know if I was supposed to see them, but there was this document that um, had, you know, the, the top five most appealing traits about me uh, that was supposed to be circulated within marketing and publicity to figure out how to talk about me, how to represent me to booksellers. And, and the very first one is she's Chinese American. And sometimes I think this is the least interesting thing about me. Um, I'm obviously very proud of being Chinese American, but I also, you know, there are, there are so many other sides of me that can't be boiled down to, she's an immigrant. And again, it comes back to the question of genres and, and labeling. Sometimes I, I'm afraid that I'll be pigeonholed or sidelined into a very specific niche of, well, read this book if it's AAPI Heritage Month and you want to learn about Asian Americans. But otherwise, you know, it's not everyday literature that is, is for everyone. And I'm very frustrated by that. Um, but the other side of this double bind is that you also aren't considered authentic enough to tell your own stories, right? And, and this is rampant in Chinese American communities too. I don't know what it's like for you, but there's always, there are always these criticisms that, well, if you haven't lived in China for your entire adult life, you don't have any right to, to describe it or speak about it. You don't have a real genuine connection to Chinese culture or Chinese mythology. You're not a real Chinese person. You're basically westernized. And it's kind of like being disavowed by both literary cultures. So where do you fall, you know? Um, but a lot of my research focuses not on the disadvantages of being in the diaspora, but rather the kind of critical agency and the freedom that comes with being able to navigate both worlds. And, and one example of the kind of freedom that I feel like I have is, is translation. I also work as a translator and I'm able to function as a bridge and bring stories by Chinese writers to an Anglophone audience who otherwise would never be able to read them. And I'm also constantly translating myself and my family and, and articulating thoughts in both directions. And I think you know, not quite belonging in either place allows you this kind of critical distance towards both, both spheres that, that somebody who's only fully situated in one culture might not be able to have that sort of same perspective. So I think, I mean, it's hard, right? It's, it's tough to be told you're not enough. You don't deserve your own culture. You don't get to write about yourself. And I think I'm always very suspicious of hard and fast standards of authenticity because they feel like gatekeeping to me. Um, and it's also hard to be told that your work only appeals to a very small audience and you'll never be mainstream because the, the average reader just doesn't really care about Chinese Americans. I don't think this is true actually. I think publishers are always underestimating how hungry the average reader is for experiences that aren't like their own. But and, and in acknowledging this difficulty, 
you also have to find the, the particular advantages, right? You're able to tell stories that nobody else can. So lean into that and don't give up. This question asker wonders if Rebecca Kwong's life has changed after becoming a successful writer. Well, the main thing is that I travel a lot more now. And before, I would have had, had no reason to go to Minneapolis on a random weekday. But <laughs> here I am. And um, I actually I worry often about being so absorbed in the life of writing that I forget to live my life period. And I, I observe this syndrome in a lot of, of authors whose early works I loved, but then their later works seem to only be about being a writer. Um, well, I've just written my novel about being a writer, but <laughs> I don't count. Um, but I think, you know, the life of being, being an author and traveling all the time and talking about books is, is so specific and it can be isolating. And so in the recent year, and the last year is really when things got kind of wild for me. Babel kind of took off in, in a way that was unprecedented for me. And, and I felt like I, I was living in this new, you know, I was doing all these things that I had never expected for myself. And I kept coming back to the question of how do I stay grounded and how do I keep participating in the kind of social life that lets me meet people and learn stories and learn from hardship and and absorb influence from, from everything going around me in a way that I was before uh, my books really took off. So, so there are two ways I deal with that. And the first is I really try to keep my academic and my writing life separate. So when I'm in the classroom, I don't talk about my work. I don't you know, mutter to, to my classmates, by the way, I'm an author. Um, sometimes you know, we talk about it socially, but everyone's very normal about it. And sometimes people swing by and are like, hey, by the way, will you sign a book for my friend? But otherwise, at Yale, I'm permitted to just be a normal graduate student. And my, my students are especially good about this. I, I've never said a word about it to them. And I know Gen Z students, like they're obviously online, they're obviously on TikTok or like finding my Wikipedia, stalking my Instagram. But if they are, none of them have ever mentioned it and we're able to get through discussion section just focusing on the material. And I think that's been very healthy for keeping me grounded. And the other thing is to remember that other people will always be my best source of story material. And I, I really wish I could remember which author articulated it this way, but um, because I think it's perfect writing advice, but I saw it once and I just completely forgot the name, but I really try to stand by the principle that your ability as a storyteller only goes as far as your understanding of other people. So the writers who kind of shut themselves up in their apartments and live like Athena does in, in Yellowface in this tier above and beyond everybody else, refusing to, to hang out with other people, I never want to become like that. I, I always want to be open to new connection and to learning things. And I never want to be, well, it's a bit tough now because I've just been talking at you for the whole hour, but in most social circumstances, I never want to be the one talking about myself to others. I always want to be learning from the others around me. Um, so I know your question was, how has my life changed? But my answer is really, I'm, I'm trying very hard to keep it the same so that I can keep producing the kind of work I have been. Our next question is about the inspiration behind the magic world Kwong created in her novel, Babel. Okay, um, if you haven't read Babel yet, here's how the magic system works. Um, there's something called silver working, and you, you take a silver bar and you inscribe a word or phrase in one language on one side, and a corresponding word or phrase in another language on the other side. And since anybody who is bilingual or has worked in translation knows, there's just no perfect one-to-one -one correlation between any two languages, no matter how close they are. There's always something warped, something lost in translation, something that doesn't quite feel right. Um, those, those bars take that, that loss and manifest them as a magical effect. And I came to this magic system because I mean, I've just always felt that translation itself was magical. It's, it seems like such a simple thing, but when you think about it, it's, it's absolutely astonishing that we can bring texts across 
across centuries, across the world, that we can move them through time and space like that to reach readers that the authors never imagined for that text, never intended for those readers, that, that we can speak you know, back to the Greeks, back to the ancient Chinese philosophers. I think that's so cool. And I started working professionally as a translator the year before I started drafting Babel. And I'd kind of been self-translating all my life between English and Chinese, but it wasn't until I was thinking really hard about how to capture the magical effect of a science fiction short story to an Anglophone audience, knowing that I was going to have to change so much about the metaphors and the frames of reference and the illusions, etc. I mean, you, you think it's easy, but you, I mean, for example, uh, a lot of romance languages are gendered and, and English is not in the same way. And, and this has important implications for connotations of words and scenes. A lot of romance languages have different words for various forms of you depending on levels of intimacy. And I had to have a conversation with my French translator about at exactly what point in the text are forming characters switch from tu to vous because, or from vous to tu because they've decided that, that, that they love each other and they're going to be close friends. And that's not a conscious choice I had to make when I was translating language. So I just, I mean, I think all of that, that play at the border between languages and that shift between words is, is so fun. And that had always felt magical to me that the, the magic system for Babel didn't feel like something I had to sit down and ponder um, a long time about and construct. It, it just kind of slipped out. And now the reason why it's silver is in part because the novel is about silver capitalism in the 1830s, but also because silvery, uh, silver um, was smelted with mercury and mercury is the Roman name for Hermes and Hermes is the god of travelers and translation and messengers. So it all fits together so nicely that it feels less like something I came up with and more like something that was already there and I just discovered and wrote about. This question is if Rebecca Kwong ever feels like she is tokenized as an author. I think the fear of being a token is never really gonna leave me. I think ever since I got started in the industry, I mean, I've had people say to me so often that it, I, it became internalized and became this recurring anxiety in my head that the only reason why I'm published is to be the token Chinese American author on the list. And that the only thing that's interesting about me, the only reason that people read me is because I'm not white and um, you know I'm an interesting, exotic minority, whatever. And I know that's not true, but after years of hearing stuff like this, it kind of grips you from the inside. And part of the reason why I wrote Yellow Face is because when I can't get a ghost to stop bothering me, I just have to trap it on the page. So that's kind of the voice of June, the narrator. That's how she thinks about other people in publishing. June is precisely the girl who would remark snidely to me at a publishing lunch that, oh, well, I'm sure they needed a big you know, Chinese-American novel this year. Um, and, you know, it's, it's that bitchy, nasty voice that I just wanted to trap in black and white and to articulate her thoughts and lay them all out there so that they couldn't haunt me anymore. And they still haunt me a little bit, but I think the exercise of writing Yellow Face helps. Um, now, as for the question of how do I tell when I'm being a token versus being taken seriously, I don't think you can ever tell, but here's what I've learned through a few years of, of talking to readers like you all and working in the industry. I think publishing vastly underestimates readers. Um, my, well, somebody at my publisher once told me, not in a cruel way, but just in a very frank way, the way that they discuss books um, in, in marketing is wondering, is this going to appeal to a Southern white woman book club? There's nothing wrong with Southern white women book clubs, but that is the demographic that all novels are being expected to hit. And if you don't hit that demographic, then, then you're not considered bestseller material, right? And, and the way that novels are talked about, you know, well, this novel is just about Asian people. That's not gonna appeal to that, that reading list. I just don't think that's true. I think readers are much hungrier and much more curious and empathetic that 
than publishing is giving them credit for. And part of the trouble is the, the way that books are marketed to them, right? Again, it comes down to the trouble of marginalized writers kind of being put in boxes in this little niche of, oh, this book isn't for everyone. We'll only market it to our Asian customers. No, I think, I think those stories should be marketed to everyone and should be talked about as books as, that everyone should read. And we need better channels for those stories to reach, reach those readers. So when I, when I think about how my work is being positioned within the industry, I also remember that there is a reader on the other side who is not reading me as a token, but reading me because they're just interested in the story. So maybe, you know, people are thinking of me as a token, but as long as I'm reaching the reader who needs me at that moment, I'm fine with it. Being bilingual, this audience member wonders in which language Kwong writes and processes her thoughts. That's a great question. And I talk about this with my bilingual friends all the time. Because I really believe you are different people in different languages. I just have a completely different personality when I'm thinking and speaking in Chinese. Now, my literary self is all in English, and that's partly because all of my education was in English. I did K through 12 in the US, I did university and grad school, all, all in the US or the UK. So that's, you know, when I, when I think about scholarship, I think in English. But when I think about family, I think in Chinese. And when I'm speaking to my parents, um, I find myself switching um, or, or at least using, you know, this, this pidgin we call Chinglish where the sentence starts in English and ends in Chinese. And when I think about my grandparents, I switch to Chinese as well. When I think about food, I think in Chinese a lot. Um, and I, I just, well, so you didn't ask about this, but I love thinking about language as identity and about playing between those identities because I've also spent quite a lot of time thinking about the particular magic of language classrooms. I, I was taking beginner Japanese with a bunch of undergrads and I had so much fun in that classroom because I have this working theory that it's hard to lie in a language that you don't have complete mastery over because when you don't have the the words for particular nuances or for verbal trickery, you can only come out with very blunt and honest things. So during the first uh, class session, we went around introducing ourselves to our classmates. And we could only say very basic things about ourselves, like, I like movies. Do you like movies? I like horror. Do you like horror? Yes, yes, hi, 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 I like horror. Um, and, you know, this is such a limited way of communication, but it's actually it's also a very honest and beautiful way. And when we went into that classroom, we would slip into this kind of like childlike self who, who was reaching for all the words available for us and never quite able to, to express ourselves with all the articulate sophistication of, of adults. But there's something pure and beautiful about that. So I think it's not just which language you're speaking in that, that determines who you are and how you think in that language, but also your level of mastery of that language. Um, so for instance, I'm also very shy in Chinese because I haven't lived in, in a place where I'm speaking Chinese on a day-to-day -day basis. So at this point, my, uh, my literary Mandarin is a lot better. I can read books very fluently, but, but I struggle to have an academic conversation. And because of that, I'm, I'm very withdrawn and timid, and I, I'm not like this in English. I'm, I'm very happy to, to express everything I'm thinking about. So. Yeah, I'll just, I mean, I'll just be rambling about language and translation at this point, but I hope I answered your question. <laughs> Our next question is how new readers are discovering Rebecca Kwong and her work. Yeah, well, so I try not to look at book talk or bookstagram because I feel pretty firmly that that should be a reader's space. And I think it's quite cringe, actually, when publishers <laughs> or authors try to get too involved. Like, um, there was the period where publishers were actively encouraging authors, like, get on TikTok, make TikToks every day. Like, that's how you'll connect to a new audience. So they're definitely feeling that on the industry side. Like, certainly, Book Talk is this big publicity platform. But what you then had was like crusty older people like me who like, you know, don't, I don't even have the TikTok app on my phone because I find it such a, I mean, I'll just like be looking at cat videos for hours and hours if I have the app. So it's like, I need this for self-control. Um, but you had these people who, who weren't really familiar with the platform, didn't really understand the tone of a TikTok video getting on and being like, 
hi, kids, I want to sell you some books. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's a little embarrassing. Um, so now I only post the occasional TikTok video, but I try not to market myself too hard on, on those apps. I think the real benefit is, is when readers talk to each other on, on TikTok and on Bookstagram. And I think you're right, there is this wonderful, um, you know, community building around books that wouldn't get that kind of same front of the bookstore attention that I think is really cool. I know that there are also conversations about TikTok or BookTok revolving around the same book over and over again, though. I'm told that all everybody talks about over there is Colleen Hoover sometimes. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, I, I really think I need to pick up a Colleen Hoover title. Um, so I'm. I believe that book talk probably has the same kind of bias problems as any other industry, but, but it is a really cool platform to get visibility for voices that otherwise wouldn't have that kind of reach. So um, for readers that are recommending books over there, or my books, I'm like, you know, go for it. Keep, keep doing you. Um, and I'll just keep pretending like I'm not watching the cat videos. <laughs> Our last question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring if Kwong has any favorite untranslatable idioms or phrases. Recently did a talk at my alma mater and my undergrad mentor, um, who I studied Chinese history, tossed out this idiom. So I, I have to credit it to him, Professor Spendelow. But we sat down for a talk and he said, all right, now I'm going to hurl bricks and expect jade. And literally, it doesn't, you know, it, it's hard to figure out what this means. But the idea is that um, the speaker doesn't have very articulate thoughts, is, hasn't really thought of anything interesting, just has some dull, vague sentiments like bricks. He was being very self-deprecating. Uh, but the idea is, you know, you toss these out to get the conversation started, and then the responses you get from, from the other seminar members uh, turn into jade because people are coming with their much smarter and much more interesting thoughts. And I feel this way sometimes at book talks. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to toss out some bricks and, and the audience questions will generate the jade. So I really like that one. Okay, thank you all so much. That wraps up our Scott County Library event with Rebecca Kwong. And that'll wrap up our spring 2023 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in August as we announce our fall 2023 season lineup with more great authors. Over 150 podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite place to download podcasts. So if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past 19 seasons, we've had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>